Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today's guest is the one and only Dr. Scott Stevenson. Scott Stevenson is really well known for his style of training, Fortitude Training, which is a a really interesting and really cool way of approaching bodybuilding and building muscle. And he essentially takes multiple disciplines, multiple periodization styles, multiple intensifications that you can implement into your training, and he mixes them together in a smart fashion to improve performance, improve recovery, and build as much muscle as possible. So instead of us spending a month just focusing on this one intensity or this one method or this one style of training, let's blend them together, get the best of both worlds, and really grow our physique with that. And that's kind of what he's done with Fortitude Training. But he's also really well known for his books, uh, the recent one, which I have read more than once, and it's, it's truly like an index or encyclopedia for anybody who wants to develop their physique. And that's uh, How to Become Your Own Bodybuilder coach. So he's literally teaching people how to be their own coach, which is why him and I get along so well and why we had such a great conversation is because we both believe in the philosophy of teaching and educating our clients, educating our listeners, educating our readers, educating our followers, and trying to teach people how to have autonomy um, inside, abundance inside of fitness. How can this be automatic for you? How can this be second nature? How can you make this a lifestyle? And how can you coach yourself and teach yourself and educate yourself? Well, most of the time you need coaching in order to get to that place, but you also need education. So whether you get education from coaching or you get coaching by being educated, it doesn't matter. Our goal is for you to get to your result and learn exactly how you got there, why what you did worked, and what you need to do to keep seeing the success that you achieved. And that's what we talk about today. We dive into his book. We dive into his methods for fortitude training. We dive into his approach to coaching and writing. We dive into what bad coaches do and trying to sell black magic to people. Um, we talk about a lot of good things. Him and I get along really well. We see eye to eye on, on quite a few topics, except he is on a whole nother level when it comes to knowledge and being able to display science. So really excited. It's a pleasure. It's an honor uh, to have him on the podcast. Grab a notepad and a pen because you guys will need it for this one. Um, and before I get in the show, remember, as always, if you love this show, please do me a huge favor. Take a screenshot of it. Head over to Instagram. Post it on your story. Tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom. Make sure you tag Scott at Fortitude Training. I'm going to put both those in the show notes of this podcast. Tag us both because we want to thank you for listening and we want to share it on our story as well. And without any further ado, let's talk to the one and only Dr. Scott Stevenson. So, man, I am, uh, like I said, I'm really excited about this one just because I've been taking in so much of your content probably over the last, like, really, I think, year or two. Uh, within the last two years, I, I found your mm -hmm. stuff and really started diving into it. Then you uh, came out with your second book, the um, How to Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. And as I said to you, it's amazing. It's like an encyclopedia. So we'll link that in the show notes and make sure people can grab that because it's cool. I mean, it's honestly crazy how much info you packed into that so what was like what was the thought process on creating that book in the first place oh so that's the 
sometimes I go a little deep when I get asked this question, but I mean, I've been doing this for a while, a hot minute, as they like to say, I've been competing for over a couple of decades now. So back when I started doing this, literally there was just bodybuilding and fitness. There wasn't even, there wasn't even figure. There was no classic, none of that sort of thing. And there were like, this was like around the time when like Chad Nichols, for instance, was, was first like, you know, helping out Flex Wheeler and those sorts of folks. There weren't coaches, like people didn't do this sort of thing. You just figured it out on your own. You talk to people. And I found that extraordinarily gratifying. Um, just like the guy, I always use sort of the analogy, the guy who's tinkering in his garage on his hot rod, you know, and now you, of course you can go on YouTube and learn all sorts of things, but you just had to figure stuff out. And when you do that, the depth of the learning that you get from that trial and error process on your own is, is really extraordinary. You can learn a lot that way because you learn from your mistakes more often than you sometimes learn from your successes. You expect the success to happen, mistake you don't. So you figure out what went wrong and you can remedy it from there. And it's a very individualistic sport as well, although we've got teams now and people are doing this together, but it just seemed to be something that is, it's a, a, a way to develop your own thought process, a way to develop yourself, both physically, mentally, I mean, even spiritually. There's, there's something about what, I mean, why would you do something like go into the gym and pick things up and put them down and go through what we do? Yeah, it, it, it literally it's it's something there's actually a guy by the name of Andrew Weil, who is very well known in the wellness sphere. He actually lives in Tucson now. He wrote a book long before he became known for what he does now called The Natural Mind. And he talks about in that book because he, he had some experience with Timothy Leary back in the LSD days. He actually did some postdoctoral work with him. He went down to the Amazon and, you know, dug into psychedelics and those sorts of things. And he documents documents in that book the extent to which basically across cultures and throughout ages of human beings, we very often seek out alter, alternative states of consciousness, altered states in some way, shape or form. We jump out of airplanes, we do motocross, kids get in, in chairs and they spin themselves around or they get on playgrounds and they go and do crazy things. Um, so that's part of what we typically do with our minds to sort of stretch them and expand our experiences. And the gym is very much, um, like that, at least in my mind. So we don't have in nowadays, at least in the Western civilized society, we don't have easy ways that, that you can just go and do those sorts of things that normally come along with tradition and cultures. So, but the gym is one way where it's, it's okay in the right gym to scream and yell and spit and bleed and, you know, just put yourself, push yourself beyond what seems reasonable in a natural civilized society. So there's something there just being able to do that that I think is an innate part of the human experience, at least the way I understand it should be. Plus you get to be kind of an engineer, you get to be sort of a scientist, um, you get to know your body in very way, very, very different ways. And that's um, uh, just great for sex appeal as well. Like there's something to say for that. Like we obviously we're very sexually oriented beings too as humans. So there's just seem to be, seem to be so much there that comes from doing this on your own there even was a notion of a coach so to speak like that term really as a as a coach as a bodybuilding coach it's maybe 10 years old i'm guessing something like that it's just it's sort of a, a newfangled way to sort of say you're you're a trainer yeah um and now people like to use the word guru now and again which is a four-letter word i'm not too big on that one so there's that notion and the the title be your own bodybuilding coach is it's kind of a spin-off of be your own buddha 
and people who listen to my stuff, you may have heard me say this before. One of my favorite Zen Cohen's is if you meet a Buddha in the road, kill him. So if someone comes to you and tells you that he or she is your Buddha, is your guru, is your guide, is the spiritual teacher or the person to whom you should subjugate your own experience and knowledge and, and your innate sense of what's right or wrong, then that's the person you should kill. Not that you should be killing people, you know, shooting them dead, but that someone, that person is trying to rob from you that which you already know. Like one of the most precious things that you have is your internal sense of what's right and what's wrong, what should work for you. So this is not to say that clients should go killing their coaches, but there is something that could be, can be lost if you simply subjugate um, that, that sort of inner sense that you have to others. Not that you shouldn't draw upon people's expertise. That's why I wrote the book. So people have something to refer to, as we kind of talked about a little bit before we started recording. But there's something to be gained there in terms of personal growth that is missed when you just um, sort of fall into someone's uh, care and let them tell you exactly what to do. And the most obvious sort of experience or um, example of that is people who have and this is true for most everyone, I'm, and I'm, this isn't, isn't the pot calling the kettle black here, many of us have poor body image in some way, shape, or form, or we're very oriented towards that. So that makes us, uh, and this is true of the entire fitness industry, ripe to be suckers, to be taken by scams and quick fixes, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when someone, you see often that many people will literally kind of do whatever their coach says, and there's horror stories of coaches who have taking advantage of their clients in various ways because that's such a weakness for them, so to speak. It's such a, an insecurity is probably a better word for them. And so that's something that I see as a potential hurdle to be overcome. Problems are potential successes waiting to happen, so to speak. Someone said that. I don't know. I just sort of made up that version of the quote, but that's sort of how I see these things. So when you have someone who maybe has a body image issue and has maybe struggled with those sorts of things and they get into competing and they have an opportunity now to sort of take charge and be the person who is directing their own autonomous exercise habits, figuring out how to pick a dietary strategy that's sustainable for them to maintain a body fat that they feel comfortable with, that's better for their health, all those sorts of things. And they then give all that power and that potential to a coach, then when that coach is gone, for instance, they're shit out of luck to some degree because they may not have learned anything. They literally are just turning off the part of their brain that could be growing and dealing with those struggles, those difficult periods. Um, this isn't to say like, for instance, someone's an IFBB pro and their career rests upon how well they place to some degree. And they tend to drop the ball two weeks out from a show because their brain is so scrambled from the low, low calories, et cetera, et cetera. Coach is probably a good idea. That makes sense. In fact, for some people, not giving into their pride and hiring a coach could be a good thing to do. So that might be a step forward for those folks. But when things get difficult, to some degree, I think that's the opportunity to figure out why is this so bothersome to me? What can I see from this? And how can I grow from this? So bodybuilding is a way to sort of evoke that in a society where we have pretty much all the basic things the sort of the, for, for people who can do bodybuilding, our Maslow's pyramid, our hierarchy of needs, it's pretty taken care of. We've got plenty of food, we got shelter, we have water, 
we're pretty safe, things are, you know, things are pretty good for us, but we're lacking to some degree in those things that create the struggles that I think are very much part of what makes life worth living. So I wrote this book sort of to one, get myself, to shoot myself in the foot business-wise. So I had, didn't have clients coming to me. I'm really kind of joking there, but that's kind of what it, what it does. People will come to me and they'll say, I, I bought your, I bought your be your own bodybuilding coach book. Can I hire you as a coach? And I'm like, read the book again, starting with the title. I don't say that, but it's, you've sort of missed the point. The point is that you can take this and use it to the extent possible as a way to gain more knowledge and then, and then take on those struggles that bodybuilding might present to you in various ways. So that's, I mean, literally so many people now like think, and this is just a function of the culture. I would have done the same thing probably if I had been born 20 or 30 years later that you can't do physique competitions without a coach. Like, it's just like, I have to have a coach. Like, how could I even think of everyone's got a coach, right? I have to be part of a team, all these sorts of things. It's like, yeah, you actually, you can, you can do all of it. There's no requirement. It's like, you know, when you put in your, you know, what, what division and what you want to be in, what age or what your age is, your weight, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, you don't have to name a coach to do it on your own. Yeah. So that was sort of the motivation is to, it's all about trying to help people, you know, for me and, and to try to, uh, um, give back a little bit to this endeavor that's meant so much to me over the years. So that was the origin. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that it aligns pretty well with what I mean, obviously, we are a coaching company. So that's what we do. But one of the things we always say is and we don't work. I have put a handful of people through bikini competition, physique competition, bodybuilding, but that's not our primary thing. I always say we're like advanced gen pop because we work mm. with people who aren't competing, but they are interested in the science. They're interested in periodization. They're interested in more of the detail and the nitty gritty. Um, but even with them, like we always say, like we're trying to make you your own coach because you're not going to hire us right. and pay us forever. Like that's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people out there, unfortunately, who act like what they're doing is black magic and they don't educate their clients whatsoever. Yeah. You right. know? And, uh, and that's where people get stuck. But that's why I appreciate this podcast and having people like you on because it's like your mission to help people have that autonomy over time with mm -hmm. fitness. You know? Yeah. There, I, I'm reminded of, uh, this is, this is probably more formative than I maybe even give it credit. But when I first started graduate school in, in Texas, I was working for a personal training company. I worked with a guy who was, had his own little company at a gym and I, you know, I go in there really, you know, I train from like five o'clock in the morning, the early people until I run off to class, head back to campus. And there was once a woman who, he was out of town, the guy owned the company, and he, he was very good at doing, he was probably one of the worst or best, depending on how you look at it, at, at not informing his clients at, and making them think he had black magic that was at work here, that somehow they had to come to him for. And this, he had a, a woman who came in and uh, he asked me to, to take over the training for her. She actually looked really, she was very, very fit. She trained really, really hard. She was very much obsessed and focused on her body and she may have been a model or something like that but she was completely incapable of doing any of this on her own and I remember speaking with her actually sorry that was another client this was this was the client who she needed she was basically bouncing around the gym and she needed someone there at every step of the way so she was doing like a like let's say a press exercise and then she'd go on the treadmill and do an interval and then she'd go to a, a pull down and then do an interval. And I was running around the gym back and forth, setting up all the machines as she screamed at me with her headphones on. So I couldn't, like, she couldn't even hear me. 
And it was just absolute utter mayhem. And this is something that she literally had to have someone there to do. Otherwise she just wouldn't train completely utterly dependent upon as if, as if like the trainer literally was the heart and the lungs of her body and she couldn't move. She couldn't come off of her, you know, her, her support system, life support system without a trainer there. And then she just went, it was, the, and it was something you couldn't really probably do without getting in a fight every time you're in the gym. So that's an extreme case, but I think there's subtler versions of that all the way down the line. Um, and, you know, I want to at least give people that option. Who knows? You know, some people, I, I know that I get lots of people who will come to me after they've made a transformation or they've competed and they'll send me messages on Instagram, for instance, and they'll say, hey, I just competed and I just posted my pictures. I tagged you on it and I just used your book. And that's just like, that's awesome. That just yeah. feels so good. It's like, thank, thank you for letting me know. And that's just really cool that they did that. And they, they uniformly tell me what I was just talking about, that they found it so much more gratifying. And when they think back in retrospect, like, you know, I didn't need that help. And, and here's the thing too, that, that I think, like I still take on clients, but what I do with them, instead of coaching on a regular basis, I just do phone consults, which they can string together in whatever way they need. So I kind of view my role and it's always been this way, even when I was a personal trainer to take people, get them up and running and then let them go on their own and check back as needed. Mm -hmm. You needed some twists in your program. You need some exercises. You've got some aches and pains you need to, need to deal with, what have you. Come back, and if when you're at your limit in terms of figuring things out, then you can call on me as your quote-unquote expert, and I can add some spice. We can think things through. So when people come to me with these phone consults, it basically short-circuits that thing that happens very often, which, which you'll hear so many trainers complain about, especially if they allow their clients' phone access. So, you know, I'm out eating and, you know, can I have put butter on my steak or, you know, those sorts of things. Like literally, you're, they're, can I, should I tie my shoes before I leave the house? These are like day-to-day -day, like basic things that they feel like they need to ask their trainer for. And they're, 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 that's the extent. It's kind of bizarre, but that really happens on a regular basis. I'm sure you've heard, heard of that or maybe even experienced it. So when people take can only hire me on for a phone consult and we have to plan that a day or two in advance those sort of things are completely out out, out the door like they're not going to they're not going to ask me those questions because those times have come and gone and they've since they've handled that hurdle trying to figure out whether they should or shouldn't put butter on their steak for instance and they've also come with some preformed ideas that they pondered for a while it's like you know what would be the advantage of ramping up my volume as i train you know, would that make sense? And they think about it and they're like, oh yeah, so-and-so does that. Let me go see what he has to say. And they think it through. They may answer that question just by having 24 hours to ponder it before they come to me. So when they do come to me, the questions are more refined. They're better constituted. They've thought them through. They've answered many of them already. And we have a really high quality, informationally dense, um, uh, worthwhile session monetarily. So you do one of those every month and that can be worth, you know, nine months of having little tidbits of information trickling in when you just do regular check-ins. So I like that it's just a better value for people in my mind. And it forces them because of that delay to think about, imagine like, imagine the times when you've said something you really wouldn't say otherwise, but you were being reactive. It's happened a lot to me. Yeah. So if you had five minutes, someone said, freeze. Take some deep breaths. Do you really want to say that? Oh gosh, no, I don't. Then you say something much better. 
I sometimes I vote, I, uh, I quote Viktor Frankl, uh, who says in a man's search for meaning, and I, well, I paraphrase, I can't remember the exact quote, but he basically says, live life as if living it for the second time, where you now have the opportunity to not make the mistakes you might once would have made. So you can do that with, with these kind of consults, or if you just are mindful of what's going on, think things through yourself first, and then you can figure out, okay, this is, I really don't know, I'm lost, I'm gonna have to, have to ask Scott about this one. So that's, I think, a better way to help people. Yeah, I, I love it because it, it just shows so much integrity in what you do. And I think it it doesn't leave out the fact that people need to stay consistent over time. And I think that's, oh. that's the real thing is like, you know, this takes, I mean, you've probably been doing this for how many years have you been training and in the gym? It's almost 40. It's getting close oh. to 40 now. Yeah. <laughs> so it takes a while, right? Um, and it's actually cool. So I'm 28. I just hit a decade of training for me because I started when I was 18, right actually never lifted a weight until I was 18, got out of high school. And that's when I started, but, oh, wow. uh, but it was cool. Cause I th sat back and thought even 10 years of being in the gym, literally every single week nonstop for 10 years straight, you know, and like that's, that's really what it takes after a long period of time. And I, and I'm nowhere near <laughs> to where I want to be. You know, it's, it's a constant, right. I always say it's like chasing the unicorn. You never really get there. <laughs> you just keep going and going and going. Um, but, but I do want to dive into some specific uh, context because I'm really curious to hear um, how you developed Fortitude Training. It's, it's something that you've developed uh, over the years, I'm assuming. And, and from the sounds of it, from influence of other coaches and people that you've worked with over the years and you've kind of created your own style of training, can you um, – I know it's probably impossible to – explain exactly how a program looks, but like kind of break down the philosophy behind it for us step-by-step. Step. Yeah. So uh, I'll go, I'll go way back, but I'll try to move through it quickly. So I had started figuring, I, I would try the high volume approach for years and I just like to train too hard to get away with training the way they do in the magazines. It took me decades to figure that out. Literally just beating myself up 20 sets of 20 squats and all sorts of crazy, you know, I would do anything it basically took. If I could train all day long, I would. So I whittled things down to a higher frequency approach and I've been um, and training as hard as I could with progressive overload, just basic core principles. And I came across DC training online around 2000, something like that, when I first came out. And I started, and the only thing really that didn't match was I hadn't been doing cluster sets, the way the rest pause sets are done with DC. So I started training that way, met Dave Henry. He just did an interview. He talked about this a bit. We trained together for years that way, trained that way for a long while. And then some circumstances led to me being Dante's official DC trainer. Um, so I would confer with Dante now and again. And what Dante does isn't strictly what you see online. And I would do things differently based on what I sensed and what a history told me about a client would work best training wise or what a, what a good variation might be. So, and I started doing those things after many years of do, doing sort of strict DC training, not program helping, but really just pushing the micro loading week after week, year after year. Um, I started changing some things up. I had some injuries, for instance, I had some small tears in my triceps that forced me to take some time off and then come back with higher rep sets, which I found worked really well, something I hadn't done much of in the past, at least not for arms. So I started seeing from those injuries and some other things that higher reps work as well um, as the heavier loading. And we now know this, of course, because people have done these sets, done these, these uh, studies with the higher rep, lower load training compared to heavier training, like 80% versus 30 or 40 or 50% of a one rep max. You get the same growth, at least on the short term. As long as you're progressively overloading, I think it's going to happen no matter what, to some degree. So 
um, there was that. Uh, I, I, I wanted to change something. I was looking around and I found a, a program by a guy named Leo Costa called Titan Training. That's actually where the term muscle round comes from. I wasn't going to take a basis for a cluster set that he came up and then just give it, call them like Stevenson rounds or something like that and try to, you know, obscure the origin. In fact, rest pause comes from Mike Menser and Dante gave credit to him. It always makes sense. I try to give credit to the people who are the origin of those ideas, at least to some degree, as far as I know. So um, I went into that program and I way overdid it. I document that in the book. I literally overtrained for the first time. But I learned a lot of things in terms of the things that I think personally and that made sense too in, in having had clients that are involved with overtraining. And one of the things that's important that sort of is, is a theme throughout all the way in which the training is done in fortitude training is that those sets where you really push the limits, where you're getting, you're literally at momentary muscular failure, it's that last rep or two that really has an exponentially greater inroad into your central nervous system recovery. So you leave a set, two or three reps in reserve. And I was using that idea before even the reps in reserve notion had been published um, by Eric Helms in, in, in his earlier work. And uh, those last rep or two, those are the ones that really, really knock you on your butt. I actually learned this in high school doing a training program we did where you're, it was a descending pyramid, sets of eight, seven, six, five, four, three, et cetera. And when you finally hit the, uh, the set where you'd fail, the rest of it was, was shot. You could keep on going and incrementally, you know, get each of those sets until you had a failure set. And then your reps were down by two or three compared to where they would have been otherwise had you gotten that set. It was a precipitous decline once you had a failure set. So I realized that there were, I did lots of failure sets the way I interpreted Titan training. Basically, I look at something and I figure out how's the best way to make it harder. And I went way overboard with that and destroyed myself. Um, but I learned from it. That was the most important thing. So, for instance, in the fortitude training, I have three different set types. I have heavier loading sets. I have a muscle round, which is a cluster set, which I like. Um, DC training has a rest pause cluster set. Mine's a little bit different. And I have pump sets. So heavy loading is a go-to. We know that, you know, six to 12 rep range. The cluster sets, as long as you limit it to one failure point, but maintain the number of sets in the cluster set. So in my case, it's six. That's what he had in, uh, in Titan training. Um, but I limit it to one failure point. Um, that gives you a place for progression. You know how far you got into the set before you failed. And then thereafter, drop the weight down so you don't fail anymore. This is the thing that is, I have a video now. It's like a half an hour, 40 minute long video on YouTube on how to do these. So far, I don't know that even yet anyone has still said on Instagram, at least, how to do a muscle round correctly. They just oversimplify it or they miss the notion of progressive overload, which is really kind of a key feature for any type of training in some way, shape, or form. So, and even with the pump sets, you're, you don't take, you, you hit a point where you can't move the weight anymore. That's your failure and you're done. So the idea is to, is to limit that central nervous system impact, which of course then impacts your immune system, your endocrine system, um, as well, secondarily, and but get as much muscular loading in as you possibly can. So we know from some of the animal models of muscle growth that muscle can grow extraordinarily rapidly and can handle a tremendous amount of loading. 
Um, but you can't train that way in the gym that mimics that kind of loading, at least on, a, on the whole body. So some of those I've talked about, you may have heard me talk about, they would do things like a compensatory overload in the animals. They remove the soleus or, or clip the tendon, and then the gastrocnemius will grow as the animal continues to walk around. But that's a throughout the day constant stimulus. You can't go in the gym and train all day long without pushing too hard and, and pushing yourself into an extreme overreaching and eventually probably an overtraining scenario. So the muscle can handle a lot of loading, but the nervous system seems to be the limiting factor for most people. So that's why I put in, in all of those set types in fortitude training, a limitation on the number of failure points. On the heavy sets, you only would have like one failure point on the last of your heavy compound lifts. So you can get as much volume in, taking advantage of that volume dose response that we know exists and minimize that limiting factor, the inroads in your central nervous system. So there's that. One of the things that seemed to work well for me, this is a principle from DC training, is higher frequency of training. Um, initially, I was looking at the protein synthetic response, which actually becomes abbreviated, both in terms of magnitude and time, the more trained you get. So you literally, the increase in protein synthesis is over and done with it within a day, probably at least what most of the research sort of suggests. So the idea of coming in and repeatedly prompting growth every other day, several times a week, three times a week, makes more sense to me than once every week. Um, and I can go into that topic if you want. I've talked about it. So why some of the people who grow really, really well, I have my own sort of theory, my own kind of pet theory as to why that's the case and why people who have more average genetics probably need to go in and train more frequently. Um, and we know, for instance, just as a, a thing that may have popped into many people's heads is one of the best ways to bring up a weak muscle group, aside from making sure you're training it properly, you've got a good mind-muscle connection, you found the movements that work for you, you're eating enough to promote growth everywhere, is once those things are in place, train it more frequently. So take, you know, take those 10 sets you might do once a week and sp spread them out into three or four or maybe even five sets three times a week. And the research sort of suggests if you look at an overarching perspective that when you have higher frequency of training, it allows you to put in greater volume overall on let's say a weekly basis. And the more volume you can get and still recover from, the better you're gonna be able to grow. So a high frequency approach made sense to me then, it made sense in my experience, and the research also supported. So the book you can, you can see is like some of it's my experience, what I'd seen, and then backing that up with the research that, that ties some of those things together. So I put together basically a three times a week training program. I, I had different volume tiers because recovery levels are tremendously different. Different versions with three or four times a week training. And those three different set types that take advantage of different rep ranges. The muscle rounds are, are a, a cluster set, so it's an intermittent type of set, but the loading is somewhere about what you could do for a 15 rep max. So you've got heavy six to 12 rep max. You've got the muscle rounds about a 15 rep max load done in a cluster set fashion. And the pump sets, which are more like 20 to 30 reps. Those are all, those can all be used in terms of load for producing growth. So it covers all bases, so to speak, um, in a way that um, I, I've, I've talked about calling it conjugate bodybuilding, 
you know, you're combining those different things. So I tried to put all these pieces together. It's just one, one concoction, the one, uh, one recipe using all the ingredients that seem to help with growth that created fortitude training. You could use all those various things and have a, have a different program that someone who's not seen behind the scenes would look at it and say, well, this doesn't look anything like fortitude training, but it's like, well, we've got progressive overload. We've got a high frequency of training. We've got training across different rep ranges with different loads. We've got variety of exercises. We've got auto regulation. We've got some sort of periodization involved. You check all those boxes and you're going to have a successful program as long as you don't do too much, which is why I had the three volume tiers. And I wrote it out in a way where people can just kind of plug in. So I see question marks forming above your head. Yes, I, I like I like that you threw out conjugate bodybuilding because it was actually something I was going to bring up is is almost like a concurrent method or a conjugate method. Um, even I mean, usually when people are DUP, they think you're bench squatting and deadlift deadlifting three times a week. Mm -hmm. But I think really it's it's varying intensities and rep ranges throughout the week is like the the principle of that, right? And yep. what I was going to ask is is how do you set up periodization for this, or really is there the need for long term periodization because you kind of periodize it each session in each week similar to something like DUP or conjugate where instead of us saying, Hey, we're, we're doing this mesocycle of, of like more metabolic stress, like high rep ranges. And then we're doing this mesocycle of like overload and intensification and kind of going through those long cycles. You, you tend to, from what it sounds like kind of hit on all these every single session. So you don't have to do that. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, if, for a given muscle group, you'll be using one set type on a given, on a given training day. So like, on Monday, you might be heavy lower body if you're doing day one of the session. And then you would come back on Wednesday. Let's say you're training four days a week. You decided to go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, Wednesday would be pump sets, which are higher rep sets. And then you'd come back on Friday and you do the muscle rounds. Mm. So one thing that uh, – there's a couple things that allow the person to have some flexibility there. One, you can choose which end of the rep ranges you're using. So – if you're someone who's young and has joints that can handle this and you really want to press, move forward strength-wise, you feel like that you're not relatively strong as you could or should be to look the way you want to be, you might stick with, with sets that give you six to eight reps. You're an older guy and you, know, you still want to be able to train somewhat heavy, you might go closer to 12 reps. There's a world of difference between actually those loads for many people substantially. So you're always sticking the higher or the low end. Um, the muscle rounds can be done the same way. The rule of thumb is that you would fail in the fourth, fifth, or sixth set. If you pick a weight where you barely get through the third set of the six sets of the muscle round, you get in the fourth, that's going to be heavier than the other way around. And the pump sets are literally completely auto-regulated on the fly. Those can be done in absolute brutal fashion where you're doing partial reps. You're trying to make the set last and infinity. Or you can simply do a set of basically 20 straight, straight reps continuously to failure. So that, that allows for some auto-regulation day-to-day um, just within the set types. But you also have the volume tiers where you could auto-regulate. So if you come in a day and you're like, you didn't sleep well, you had an argument with someone, you know, the, their cat's outside making noise, whatever it may be and you need to drop down a volume tier, you can do that. It's right there. It's written in black and white how to do that. Eventually, people probably, many of them sort of find their own sweet spot, sometimes between those volume tiers. And you can even use different volume tiers based on the, how the muscle groups respond to or need volume in order to grow the best. Some people 
do better with higher volume for legs. Some people need to be lower volume with legs. You can do that on a literally a muscle group by muscle group basis. That's kind of why I set it up that way. But overarchingly, with uh, with the periodization, I basically I, I just borrowed from Dante. I think a lot of people will get you can get so complex with the periodization sometimes that you sort of miss the forest from the trees, and people will start to. Like, well, I've got, you know, four more weeks here and I feel like death warmed over every time I go in the gym, everything hurts. It's not, a, I'm pushing myself not only into overreaching, but into non-functional overreaching where I'm not going to even recover and come back if I keep this up. So I basically set up a, a scheme where people would pay attention to that. You'll have to learn to some degree how hard to push and where you would, you would basically have a deload. I call it an intensive cruise which is essentially a taper that would last about as long as the previous blasting period. And that can be changed too as someone finds they need more or less. So someone might push really, really hard. They find they like doing this for three weeks. They're going with the highest volume tier they can handle. They really push the limits on everything. And then at three weeks, they're like, okay, I need to step back. And then that next week thereafter, which would be one week, a third of the, the period during which they progressed, I just call it a blast and cruise. Again, I just blatantly, obviously, and intentionally stole from Dante's terminology because it's simple. Then they would have a taper where they would just go to muscle rounds. They would drop their volume tier down and train a little less frequently. So they might train only two or three times in that week as opposed to going to the gym four times. And so they taper. And what happens if, everyone, if people are doing it right, and this can even happen when people are dieting down sometimes too, is your recovery gets better. I use the perceived recovery scale, which I've got on my websites in the book as well. And you can actually, you come back stronger. And I tell the story of one of my earlier clients who was a mathematics or a math teacher in the UK who was logbooking everything to a T and he was an eating machine. And he went through his blast, decided it's time to cruise. He cruised, he came back in. And then he went back to the weights he'd been using previously for those loading sets. Those are the ones you really want to push the progressive overload on. And he picked a weight he figured he was going to stay in that 6 to 12 rep range with. And he got like 20 reps on his first set. And everything was off. And he went to the next exercise. And he was getting like almost twice the reps. Came in the next day and did the same load, the loading sets for the upper body. Had the same experience. And he was like, what is wrong with me? I'm supposed to be teaching math to people. I can't even count. Like, how did I miss, miss log all these weights? He hadn't. He had just done such a good job and we pushed the food and made sure he properly recovered, which he probably had never really done. Oftentimes people who pushed that hard also don't know how to pull back. So this is basically a written in stone way of deloading that in most cases it works for many, many people. And I saw that wasn't always working for instance with DC training. So it's a very simple, um, you know, no mesocycles nested in microcycles as part of a larger macrocycle. Essentially, it's a it's a three to one ratio where you're pushing things, but you're but you're varying as need be. So sometimes people just they wing it. They start off maybe at a lower volume tier after they're coming back, and then they, they move their way up. And then they if they have something happen that requires them to drop down, they'll do so. I know people who will like, they literally find that if they start at volume tier one or two, and then maybe they finish the last couple of weeks at the highest volume tier, um, 
then they're really ready for a break and they, they create sort of a super compensatory overreaching phenomenon where they, where they come back really stronger, much stronger, and, and they do better that way. And, they, and then they kind of know they really need to take a break too. They're not, they don't get wishy-washy with it and try to extend their blast out week after week after week. They sort of finish strong. It's like, okay, good, I did something. It's kind of a psychological trick that also works for them. So you can mix that up any way you see, see fit and extend those relative periods if you want. But it's just simple enough that I think doesn't overcomplicate things because from so many people, especially the people you're working with, first and foremost, they've got a life they've got to live. They got all sorts of things going on. Um, I even set this up and I, this was in the book, it was intentional. Uh, those muscle rounds would be used when you're traveling. So you can maintain fortitude training. If you have a, um, a travel or a vacation or a trip, you just go to muscle rounds. You go into like, you're at this great gym. How, how much does that suck if for someone who's like strictly like today, I have to squat on a, with the barbell and I'm here at like this gym with the best equipment I've ever seen. There's like nine machines I've never even tried. I want to use them all. And nope, got to squat today. Got to do my barbell work. It's like, no, take advantage of that. That's part of like one of the joys of going to another gym when you're out of town. That's written into the program. And it's, it's almost for most people who aren't doing like basic powerlifting, like barbell bench squat types of things. Even if you get on like a hammer strength machine, those vary year by year in terms of the leverage that's there. People who've used different, you got on the same like, you know, wide chest machine, what looks like the same one. They don't all feel the same. So those micro movements that you make back or forth, you can't really count on those just like you can't get on a scale in your bathroom versus the gym and expect the exact same number. You're almost just pissing in the wind to try to progress in a formalized manner like that. So I've got that written to the program. It's just sort of a more practical hands-on way, I think, to, um, to periodize. And it works really, really well. I'm very, very happy with how that pans out with people because they just know it's time to cruise. They don't tend to overtrain. It's almost impossible to really because you, you, you'd see it coming with the frequency. So that's sort of how I set it up, very basic way, but it, it works a lot, really well for a lot of people. I, I like that there's a lot about um, intuition and, and it being about feel because I think that sometimes people like look at a, a program on a piece of paper as if it's written in stone and like, especially, and that was my big problem with like percentage-based training. Like I remember mm. when even way back when five, three, one came out, it was like, Nope, I have to hit 85% of my one rep max today. Even if I felt like shit because I had poor sleep or, or like you said, I was arguing with people, cats were screaming, whatever it was. Right. And, uh, but the paper said, so I, I love RIR. I love RPE for those reasons, but I like that you have all these different methods built in to keep people thinking and learning how their body's feeling and how they should be progressing naturally. Um, right. and, and one of the things that I've heard you talk about, and I think is in fortitude training, um, is the stretching component. Um, what are yeah. you doing with stretching? Is it intraset? Is it, is it post-workout? Um, and, and what influence does that have on hypertrophy? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Now, there are actually some studies coming out. Brad Schoenfeld has a review. Um, I think there are maybe six studies, and a couple of them suggested that there's, you can accentuate growth. You want to do the stretching after the training, at least in my opinion. They've done in, interset stretching as well. That can create a metabolic stress component. It's going to make things a little bit more difficult. I would rather focus on the loading and the training. If I had to choose one or the other, I'm definitely going to take training over any type of stretching to produce muscle growth. 
at least what we can do as humans. The stretch model, the avian stretch model with the quail, like that really doesn't apply. That's some interesting information about how fast muscle can grow, but that doesn't apply to something you can do in the gym. So stretching is not done unless it's part of your warm up. I feel like I need to stretch a little bit no matter what, but I don't stretch aggressively. That's been shown to reduce performance. Don't want to reduce performance in the gym, at least in my opinion. You want to get as much loading as you can when you're doing the training. The stretching would come after you've trained a muscle group. And again, I set that up instinctively. So Dante has an extreme stretching, which is a loaded stretch in most cases. I use that as one option. Um, I have three different stretch types, so people can auto-regulate this. There might be days when you come in and you've just trained and like you push pretty hard and you get done and you go into a stretch and the muscle has a very sharp, painful uh, feel to it. You know you really whacked it. That is probably not the smartest time, in my opinion, to try to do a heavy weighted stretch. You've already done enough. You can tell it's there. But I think stretching is not a bad idea, at least in terms of, of making sure, especially for a lot of us who are sitting like this all the time, you know, at our desks to stretch some of the musculature, especially in the around the shoulder girdle. And just in general, we're sitting still so much, especially doing what you and I do, that it's a, not a bad idea to stretch just to sort of send a little bit of a signal to that connective tissue that you need to maintain some pliability. So um, one of the stretches is just a flexibility stretch. It's just some basic stretching, which I think is not a bad idea just to tune in and see what's going on with the musculature. So for instance, you might, you might, you warm up, you get ready, you're totally in the mindset for your leg training, you're squatting and you get done doing that. And then you, you've let yourself cool down a bit and you go over and do a flexibility stretch because you're not going to do any heavy stretching that day. When you go into like a hamstring stretch, you're feeling that deep up at your hamstring origin um, and you're feeling your glutes, you're feeling your adductors, like there's a tight, um, painful point type of pain there during the stretch that tells you that that's there you might not have noticed that because you are so focused on just getting into things and killing it in the gym you real then you realize wow there's really something i'm gonna have to pay attention to this and it keeps you attuned to that so flexibility stretch on one end just literally 20 40 seconds something light and easy just to, for the sake of maintaining flexibility which is not a bad thing the extreme stretch is when someone feels like they've got something in the tank. So they still train, they're finished their training. And in that case, what you've got essentially is metabolic stress, um, which will increase the activation of the units that are involved with holding a load. So there's some information coming out now that suggests that metabolic stress probably isn't an independent stimulus for muscle growth, at least in the way that people once thought it was. There may be some cell swelling that happens there with metabolic stress, but what happens at least during an exercise stress is the more metabolic stress you have, the more fatigued the fibers you are, the more you have to call upon more fibers and bring those in to the exercise, which creates more tension in those fibers involving more of those motor units. So you basically have a different activation strategy when metabolic stress is, is higher. Everything's more, more difficult relatively because you've got greater fatigue. So an extreme stretch would be like, a, like you might, if you want to stretch the pecs, you might grab some dumbbells and go into a deep fly and hold those for 60 to 90 seconds. And there's actually some research, you can grow from isometric training. This is basically isometrics. Um, so that is a, a hypertrophic stimulus in and of itself. 
And one thing that, you know, some people will make all sorts of kind of crazy claims. I don't know if this is the case. I think, uh, I think it's not a bad idea to have your nervous system um, train such that you're handling a load in a stretched position. That is a place where you can possibly have muscle tears when you're in that sort of precarious position at the end of a range of motion. So training to be strong with the, with the arms wide out creates a, an angle-specific um, uh, training adaptation. You train people in different angles at a joint, that's where they get stronger. Train people at different speeds of motion, they'll get stronger specific to those speeds of motion. So you train people with higher reps, they get better at that. Lower reps, they get better at that. Specificity of training is a pretty universal phenomenon. So it's not a bad idea to get used to handling loads at those end range of motion where you can do it safely just for the sake of potentially injury prevention. Um, plus, it reminds you what full range of motion is, which sometimes we can lose when you start cutting reps short and trying to, uh, to move the weight up. You're basically doing less work, getting more reps, and then writing them in your logbook as if you improved your performance when actually you just, you just cut your, your squats short, for instance. The one that I do probably the most, which allows you the most sort of auto-regulation and is, is what I call an occlusion stretch. So it's a stretch that is uh, similar to the extreme stretch and that you're, you've got tension being produced, but you're just holding the stretch against some sort of an immovable object and you're creating the tension on your own. So you might do like a doorway stretch for your pecs. So you lean into a doorway and you're deep in there and then you're contracting with the pecs during the stretch. And so what you can do there, especially in these, is create as much tension as feels appropriate. So if you create a lot of tension, you're like, wow, it feels like I'm about to pull the pecs off the bone. That's too much. Don't do that. You can also adjust the angle to find the angle that feels best, given what you've just trained or where you need to bring the muscle up. So let's say you're someone who, as most of us do, you're lacking in upper pec development. And you wanna to try to make sure you add some extra stimulus to that. You can do that pec stretch with the arm in a position. So when you contract against the immobile object in that stretch position, you're using the upper pecs. So that's creating a stimulus specific to where you want to feel that in the muscle. Same thing can be done in trying to preferentially target the vast lateralis, for instance, during a quad stretch. Get into a deep squat, quad stretch, I typically will use a pad or a bench, get my, my foot up behind my butt and bend the knee so you're flexing the knee and that stretches the quads and drive the hips forward, which also stretches the hip flexors and the rectus femoris, one of the quad muscles. And then if vastus lateralis and quad sweep is something that's weak for you from a physique standpoint, you can touch train and tap that lateralis and try to activate that. So you're gonna, you can preferentially through a mind-muscle connection, which can be learned can be brought on by instruction, the data there, I have a whole talk I give on that topic. You can target the muscle in the area you want it to want to feel it um, or get away from the areas that feel like they've already been blasted from the training you did that way. So distribute the stress in the way you want and get better at a mind-muscle connection. And in those occlusion stretches, you can make it as difficult or as easy as you like. So those would be, again, 60 to 90 seconds. So that's sort of an additional way to add stimulus um, to the extent that you need or feel like you need or could handle on that particular day. So another opportunity to auto-regulate the stress in a way that's different from weight training. So 
the isometrics are obviously not what most people do in the gym, but this is basically an isometric contraction under an extreme load with extreme stretches under a more auto-regulated load. Um, and those are, those can be brutal. Like typically I'll do those, like that's the best stretch. The one I just described for the quads, it's not a great way you can stretch the quads with weight. Um, but you can push as hard as you can on those, hold those for 60 seconds, as hard as you can. That's you're impressive. If like you the pain, especially if you've just finished training, is extraordinary. And when I've done my fortitude training camps, that's the thing that most people forget to do. They just like, ah, oh, you know, I do, do you do the stretches like well sometimes I you know I forget them sometimes. It's like, okay, let's go through the stretches again. And many people will say the stretch is the worst part. It's the hardest thing. Yeah. Um, and what also happens in doing those. Is I, as long as you're not overdoing them, you're probably not cutting into your recovery, but that is an extraordinary metabolic stress that I think complements training progress in general. So not only do you have that mind-muscle connection that can be developed, you know what ex extreme metabolic stress feels like in that muscle because it's all in the quad when you're doing that stretch. So you know how things are supposed to feel in the gym that you might not otherwise know. So that muscle's also going to get going to adapt to that metabolic stress enzymatically. So now you have greater fatigue resistance that then can be applied when you're actually doing the training in the gym. So you're used to that pain, that searing in the, in the quad that now you try to recreate when you're doing your quad exercises in the gym and you've got better metabolic resistance, sorry, fatigue resistance to metabolic stress. And you get instead of 10 reps, 12 reps. Mm -hmm. Or maybe those 10 reps you get are better mind-muscle focused because you've been training that with the stretches. Same thing goes on with the pump sets, I think, too. People start doing those. They get a little more muscle endurance. Then when they get to the heavier stuff, they're able to carry on and get a few more reps. And then when they go back to the pump stuff that's so light, it feels like nothing. And they can crank the reps out because they're used to training so much heavier. Mm -hmm. So those two heavy and light stresses, they complement one another. And I think just from the novelty of that, aside from the way I just explained it, the two fit together really well for a lot of people. So, and that's why I like that you do multiple things in a single like microcycle training week, because I think that if you go through a, a full, you know, four to six week block of just focusing on one thing, by the time you come back to it after the next block and the next block, you have weeks of like trying to get back to where you were in that rep range and that intensity and that style of training. Right. Um, which helps a ton. And, and, and I also like that you put the stretching post because I remember the first time I really heard about interest at stretching. And of course you always take everything to the extreme as soon as you hear about it uh, in your earlier <laughs> years of training. Right. And we were doing uh, barbell back squats, superseted with rear foot elevated quad stretches. And I just remember how brutal it was. And then coming back to the squat, you immediately have to pull weight because you're like, I, I can't lift that again, which right. I think goes to say like your, your biggest key of like progressive overload is always like a fundamental key there. Like don't sacrifice that for stretching to stretch afterwards. Um, and then I'd also be curious too, have you noticed clients yourself, people just like, uh, aside from the added stress or stimulus to the muscle, just improved range of motion in the rest of their training because they're gaining range of motion and flexibility from just general stretching. And then that leads to, to better and more quality volume in the future. For things like the hamstrings. Yeah. I mean, some exercises, they've already got a full range of motion right. and that's well within their capabilities, but for things like the hamstrings, 
Yes. That one, that one pops out immediately to me because hamstring flexibility can be so poor for many people. A great hamstring stretch, a loaded stretch is to do a stiff legged deadlift stretch. I do it with dumbbells sometimes, or just you can do a barbell if you get up on a platform and or you may even have to stand on a box for people who have really good stretching. So then you get used to, and this is a perfect example of what I was talking about before is you get used to holding a load in that deep stretch position. So if you want to do stiff legged deadlifts as one of your primary exercises, now you've got experience holding a decent load. Not that you want to go to like 405 pounds or something like that. You don't go bonkers on these because you want to hold them for at least a minute up to 90 seconds. But yes, it will allow you to feel more comfortable because you've got, you've got neurologically that. I think in those cases, to some degree, you can only get, you're not going to get better flexibility, um, at least in normal exercises, because those exercises done beyond what a normal range of motion would be are probably going to be an issue. But for a lot of people, for instance, who can't do um, uh, stiff-legged deadlifts all the way down to the floor and then find that they can, there's definitely a possibility there in stretching that fascia to allow for more growth. There's a, you can get somewhat, I've, this is sort of, this is anecdotal stuff, but you can have a bit of a compartment syndrome, I think, with fascia to some degree, and that's part of the idea behind stretching. I haven't seen this, this documented per se, but um, I know, for instance, some stories that were relayed to me of like someone ha stretching the fascia in their calf, not to the point where the muscle tissue was torn, but literally they felt the pop. And then all of a sudden that calf being able to grow better. Um, there are people who get shin splints and like Mary Decker Tab, who's the, she was a middle distance runner and Olympian years ago, her career was threatened by this and she would have to have a, um, a fascial release done on her anterior tibialis because she had so much pain there from running and the anterior tib breaks the foot. It's a dorsiflexor, but it, it, it resists plantar flexion when you have a heel strike during running. So it's doing lots of eccentric contractions and eccentric contractions, generally speaking, they produce more force in the muscle. And if you had to choose eccentric or concentric for muscle growth, I would go with eccentric. If you had to choose one or the other, both are helpful, of course. So she was someone, for whatever reason, all those eccentric breaking contractions produced shin splints in her, and she had a, a really enlarged um, anterior tibialis. So that's an example of a muscle that can grow so large that it causes pain, and it's pushing so hard up against that fascia that it's got nowhere else to grow. So it's almost as if the, like the body's capabilities for muscle growth somehow are exceeded it doesn't know how to remodel itself in a way that that disallows that pain it's trying to grow and the connective tissue can't accommodate that muscular growth or at least the epimesial fascia of the muscle the outer fascial layer can't accommodate that muscle growth so there's something to say for instance i think in gaining flexibility and having um you know who knows you know if this is the case for many people i wouldn't be surprised um, if having greater flexibility and having fascia that can more easily expand is at least going to be helpful or at least not prevent than muscle growth that might be had. The other thing that, you know, is true, and we know this from casting studies, you see it in um, people with paralysis. I talk about, I work with people with spinal cord injury for a little while. And one of the things you'll see in them is if they're taking their antispasticity medications, so they've got really no, no contractions whatsoever. 
a lot of them will sit in their chairs with their feet plantar flexed. And if you measure the muscle size relative to able body controls, the anterior tib, which is on a stretch, is pretty close to able body controls in terms of size. It's not any more active, it's still paralyzed. No, no spastic contractions, which can maintain size in, in those folks sometimes. Some people with spinal cord injuries, they don't like to take those, they'll take the spasms if it makes their legs look more normal, which is understandable. But that muscle that's shortened, the calf muscles, when they're shortened, when the, when the foot is plantar flexed, they will get, they will shrink uh, terribly. You cast them with a bent arm and the biceps will shrink more than the triceps. So just having flexibility in a way that allows you to sit posturally or be um, in a stretched position probably is good just for muscle size in general because being stretched out versus being shortened means a larger muscle if there's no activity at all. So a poor flexibility here in your chest is always, you know, your shoulder girdles are rolled forward like that. Probably doesn't help with pec size. Whereas if you've got good flexibility and it just feels normal to you to sit up like that and find a chair that allows you to do that is probably a good thing. So that's a way that flexibility could possibly help is just by how that changes how someone goes about positioning themselves on the day to day. Plus, you know, range of motion is probably a good thing on some of those exercises too, because you're making sure you're hitting the, the hamstrings and not you know, the other muscles that are trying to, trying to accommodate the fact that you've got such poor flexibility in the hamstrings, which you yeah. see sometimes too. Well, so. I think, and I think that's, that's the big key there is sometimes you just have to be specific to the individual, right? Like, you said we're sitting a lot, so hip flexors, quads are going to be pretty tight, rectus femoris. So on top of that, I've had two knee surgeries and three tears on my left side. So my left quad is just it's just stiff as a rock. And right. when I squat, I would shift to the right constantly because I had way more range of motion in my right side. And it wasn't until I had like a training partner film me that I was like, oh, shit. So for somebody like me, it's like, okay, I have to regularly stretch my quad because I'm still trying to gain that range of motion. I just had my second surgery in 2019 so it really wasn't that long ago okay. um, and this is probably the first block of time that I've been like almost daily like I'm going to stretch my hip flexors stretch my quads I, I usually stretch my hamstrings too just because in my chest and those those kind of usual points where people's bad posture including myself end up kind of tightening things up right um, I've noticed a huge difference in my squat just just not only how sore my quads get from training but also how deep mm -hmm. I can squat with a bar on my back which is I think to say like the stretching does apply, but I know some people who don't stretch their quads at all and they can squat ass to grass. No problem. You know, I think it really right. depends. Yeah. So. Do, do you ever sit with that, with that quad stretched intentionally, like with, with the knee flexed? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll yeah. like, actually I'm at my desk right now. Sometimes I'll push my chair back and just get in a half kneeling position, you know, right. just, just to open it up. Yeah. I wonder if, I mean, you have some of those, those chairs where you're, there's no back to them and your knees would just, it just kind of fold underneath uh, find them on Amazon. But yeah. I wonder what would be interesting to see if you got in the habit somehow, you'd have to sit a little cattywampus in a, a regular chair with that, with that foot literally tucked up underneath you. So your quad, that quad was stretched to not to the point where you're like grimacing and, you know, tearing up from the pain, mm -hmm. but enough to stretch it out on a regular basis. It takes a long, the last time I looked, the best number I could find is that collagen has like a 90 day half-life in the body. Mm. body so it's very very slow to remodel um but there's a study that i sometimes talk about that was done with mice where they they casted the mice 
and the legs of the plantar flexors of the mice. And then every day they were, they would break the cast, anesthetize the mic, knock off the cast, just do passive range of motion. And I think it was only, it only took about 30 minutes over the course of a 24 hour day to prevent the shortening that would have occurred if they just left the, the muscles casted. Wow. It's just a, you know, very like two or three week study. So it doesn't take a lot to be in that, but a half an hour is a lot. Like a half an hour of stretching just for one muscle group would be a lot, right? Back and forth for most people. But if you're at your desk, let's say four hours a day, maybe it's more than that. Yeah. And you put that muscle on stretch in a way that literally is uses a noticeable stretch, not anything that compromises the joint or what have you. I'd be interested to see if, if over time, over months, that connective tissue would remodel because eventually it will. Yeah. You know, it doesn't take long. You cast people cast it for a month, you know, and they can't do it. And the arm comes out and it looks like, you know, it doesn't even belong to them. It's so much smaller than the other one. So that would be just a thought, like something yeah. you might, you might try, you know, check with your PT, not giving you medical advice, <laughs> all those disclaimers, but that's me as an exercise physiologist thinking through what I might try to do yeah. in your case. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to give MacGyver on some of the chairs there you and go. try there to figure something out. Cause that, that is actually really interesting. And it's, it, it's funny. Squatting is like, has always been my least favorite thing to do. And now it's my absolute favorite. Cause I can finally squat with full range of motion. So oh, yeah. I'm like, I will do anything to be able to continually progress my squat. Cause I'm progressing it more than I ever have. And that's saying a lot, you know, 10 years into training, usually you don't see like PRs on a regular basis in one lift. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's exciting, but man, I want to respect your time. It's been about an hour of this and I could probably go on for like four more with all the information you have. So this is really fun for me. Um, let us know uh, your books and then where everybody can find you. So I can link everything in the show notes and make sure everybody can check that out. Pretty much drscottstevenson.com will get you to everything. It's, I, know, I have various URLs. You can just type in be your own bodybuilding coach, but it's all there. Just type in Scott Stevenson bodybuilding and I'm, I'm pretty well SEO'd, I think. So you can find me pretty, pretty easily. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, I'll link all that in the show notes. That way people can check out your books because I highly recommend them. Um, and once again, man, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering. And because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time. 